Welcome to The Daily Sales Show, hosted by Sell Better. Let's kick things off right here as people come in. You are here to learn about repeatable frameworks to close seven-figure deals. They function a little bit differently than those mid-market deals and those SMB deals. I have an expert in the room. This man's expertise in enterprise sales outweighs many that have been on the show in the past. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Jacob Karp. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to uh, teach what I've learned over the last 10 years. Good stuff, man. I know you got a lot of nuggets to share. Rubric is out there crushing it right now. If you're not checking out what Rubric can do, check that out. It's pretty dope. Big shout out to what we're doing on the website. Check us out, sellbetter.xyz. There's a lot of information there that you could take in and a ton of free resources. So scan this QR code. And while you're at it, hop on over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. This is where you're going to find all types of great hotline tips, takeaways, replays from the show, and more. So big free resources that you can go get right there. I want to give a big thanks to all of our partners that make this show possible. Apollo, Gong, and Vidyard, longtime partners. Vidyard, pleased to release rooms. Now you can open the doors and let your prospects in with you. Rooms is a centralized sales resource for both buyers and sellers to communicate through, reduce the noise, keep everyone engaged, surface those important information pieces, get all the stakeholders in one room. Gosh, rooms in here, man. Check it out. It's roomy up in here. Uh, we're dropping that link in the chat so that you can go check that out. You want to get started, especially if you're an existing Vidyard user. This is a great new piece of that technology. Check it out. Uh, so big shout out to them for that release. Nice. Always putting out great relevant stuff for salespeople. Uh, and that's what we highlight here. We we highlight good stuff for salespeople. This is what you're going to get a little bit of today, uh, securing that champion role, right? How do we do it? What do we do? What do we say? How do we arm these people? Strategies to exceed that quota. These bigger deals can set you apart, right? Like one of these things might make or break you in your year. So always a good thing to focus on enterprise sales if you have that green pasture. Uh, also, when not to close. I think this is an integrity conversation, so every seller needs to pay attention on that because that is more important now than ever. Let's take a look at who's in the room. Bam. I was right. I was right. Closers for life. Shout out to the senior leaders. 14%. Solid. Yeah. Hey, tell your friends. We need more senior leaders that want to come in here and change the game, right? Tell your tell your friends in the circles that you're in. They want to show up to this. Uh, all right, man. Let's get started here. Talk about some stuff. Uh, tell me about the roles that a champion might play in the modern sales space. Champion, obviously we've talked about it in the past, probably one of the most overused phrases in the game. It gets tossed around a lot for closers. So what are some roles that a champion might play as a deal starts to move forward towards a close? Yeah, I think the first thing that we want to start with is let's think about what a champion actually is, right? Like what is the definition of that? So the way that I think about it, the way that I've been taught is this is someone that has influence in the organization specifically influence across teams, but also with the economic buyer. So you're going to have a route to that economic buyer through your champion. And then they're also selling on your behalf when you're not in the room, which is so critical because right now I feel like, and, and probably always, um, regardless of segment, but especially at the enterprise and strategic level, the conversations that are happening when you are not in the room are the ones that are defining whether that deal is going to close or not. Mm -hmm. So we have to build those people, those champions, they're critical. We have to align with them. Um, I joke a little bit like the language, James, of building and testing a champion. I'm not sure I always love, right? Like these are human beings like you and I, but I think the way that we can think about it is how do we foster a relationship with them 
Yeah. How do we build trust and rapport? And then when we ask things of them, like the things you have on the screen, assisting in multi-threading, socializing the conversations, gathering the buying committee, like that is a test in itself, right? So I'll pause there. I mean, I think that's really kind of like critical to understand for people. Like that is the relationship you're trying to build. You know, uh, since the other day when we spoke and you talked about socializing things internally at a company, I really started to lean into that. And I actually took a couple of steps with some some meetings that I had booked and I reached out to some other stakeholders at companies where I had booked meetings and I socialized, as you said, right? I think this is like a great step for a champion. How do we help? How do you help me socialize the fact that we're talking about this internally? So give me some good language around socialization, uh, like a story around like, hey, we started this thing, we did this thing, um, and now I want you to spread the good gospel through the company so that I can earn that groundswell with the stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I'm always thinking about is how do I do some of my champions work for them, right? Mm. So I come out of an early stage conversation, whether that's the first conversation or second, third, whatever it is, I'm sending them that recap email. I'm sending them that summary. Here's what we discussed. Here's your current state. Here's your preferred future state, positive business outcomes, all that wonderful language. I put that together. I send that to my champion and the other people that were on the call. And then I help them to multi-thread with me. Let's get that out to other people within the org. Sometimes it's together that we do that. And sometimes it's me saying, hey, here's four people that I've already identified that I think need to hear about this. And I'm socializing that through an email, asking them if they want to get onto a call to be kept in the loop, to be updated, et cetera. Yeah. I think I get questions about this part a lot, so I want to hit this part. People always ask, am I going to get my hand slapped for that? Should I do that without asking my champion? I would have to tell you that it's really dependent on the relationship you have. I think if you have a good relationship, you can ask, hey, this is what I want to go do. Will you help me? If you're early, I just go and do it. And I'll tell you what, if I get my hand slapped, we'd probably have a bigger problem because maybe this isn't as advanced as I thought it was or not as real as I thought it was if I'm getting in trouble for just socializing a conversation I had. There, man, there used to be such a great conversation around these tests that we do with people. Uh, you know, I remember when John and I first connected, he had this idea that like, oh, you know, if you really want to get serious with somebody and test their decision-making power, we could send them an NDA. Because a lot of people that don't realize like NDAs are, you know, pretty much meaningless, right? Like I'll sign an NDA, no problem. Here you go. Like I'll sign it. Uh, but like, if you won't even sign an NDA, there's a good chance if I'm asking you for money, you're going to tell me that's not your department, right? And that that might be a problem because you're farther away from power than you think you are. I loved that test. I think it's just been taken more away from the NDA and put into a little more um, tactical approaches like the ones you've just described. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, business cases because I feel like this is something that champions probably have a role in. We have to develop a business case first and foremost, um, and that's an important thing to do. So how do we leverage it once we've uncovered it, built it? How do we get a champion on board with it? What does that process look like? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we kind of talked about how we're working with our champion to, to multi-thread, socialize the conversations, bring more people into the conversation, right? So as we're doing that, the way that I think about it is literally from like meeting one or two, when I, when I feel that there's actually something to solve for, that we've uncovered enough pain that the challenges are there. I start building like a framework right away myself. And then again, how do I do the work for my champion? So mm. in that piece, 
I bring it to them to show them like, hey, here's like a very early skeleton or framework of like what I think we're working towards together. And then are they willing to collaborate with me? Right. From early on, mid-stage, whatever it might be. But to your point, like that's one of these tests and it doesn't have to be like some crazy thing. It's like, hey, I'm building this business case. It's the things we've talked about today. It's the initiatives you're working on, the projects, the why, the future state, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Do you have time for like 15 minutes to just sit with me and make sure I'm aligned? Right. And then if you can get that, that's a test that you pass that's saying like this person's leaning in, this is real. Then you make sure that it's, you validate it with them. You're aligned with them. And then again, can we go socialize that further? Can we get more people involved? Can we strengthen these things that we're talking about today? Yeah. I think like the thing I'll say, and, and then I'll, I'll kind of be quiet here for a second is do the work for them. From the beginning, start by doing the work for them because it builds that trust and rapport and it gives them an understanding that like you're here for more than just a, a quick deal and a commission check. Like you're working towards the same things they want. Yeah. I, I like how you put that when you say we were, we do work on their behalf and in exchange for that work, the idea is that they will evangelize for you and sell your idea of a solution internally. I think this is a healthy exchange. I think it's a give get world. We talk about that in driving to close with John Barrows. It's it's a very good relationship to build with your prospects, a give get relationship. I want to pivot for a moment and ask this question. Yes, Rhonda, thank you for asking the first question. Please put your questions in the Q&A. We can stop if we see relevant questions as to what we're talking about and answer those questions, and I will leave time at the end to get the last few in if we don't answer them all. So you can upvote the questions that are most relevant to you. I will upvote Rhonda's here so that you guys can all see the thumbs up there, but put it in the Q&A. It's down below at the bottom in the Q&A section. Uh, but you can always put stuff in the chat. I just prefer questions in the Q&A. Here's the question for you. Do you actually equip your champions to sell internally for you? That's the question. And it's all right if the answer is, I never thought about it. I already see some folks selecting that. That is a good answer because not everybody thinks of this stuff. Here's what I think. Richard Harris, our friend Richard Harris, often talks about teaching our champions how to sell for us internally. This is a massive challenge. Talk to me about why this is a challenge and how we can solve for it when we do actually link up with that champion that's willing to sell for us internally. How do we arm them? Yeah, good question. Quickly, I do want to hit Rhonda's question because yes, yes, yes. good jump off point here. She asked, is it okay to ask your champion who is in their buying committee? So this is a very subtle and nuanced situation. The way that I would recommend to you, Rhonda, and everyone listening, come to the call with an idea of who you think needs to be in that buying committee already. So you've done your research before, you know, an early stage call or you're into a cycle. Think about the people that you think should be in that committee, whether you have them on an org chart, a list, whatever. And it goes actually to like the next thing, James, that you were just talking about, where you are essentially saying, how do I teach these people to buy? One of the ways we teach them to buy is we say, you know, Rhonda, oftentimes in conversations like this, when we start to move past like initial calls and start thinking about like where this might head, these are the people that are usually involved. It's a, a an FP&A person. It's a security analyst, like whatever industry or sector you're selling into. One way you can teach your buyers how to buy 
is by helping them to understand who is usually in these conversations and decisions in the hundreds or thousands of customers you have today. I love this. And I think it's even more important, the part that you mentioned there about doing your research and having a suggestion of who might also need to be a part of it. I've done this a time or two where you're like, hey, I'm pretty sure that art is going to need to be involved. This is the financial brain there. So I'm going to have to have their sign off. When do you usually get them involved in the process? And this is that how serious is this deal type of moment. Check out these results right here. Uh, we got 35 and 52% on the yes and sometimes. I think a lot of people go the extra mile for the larger deals and the other deals, mid-market SMB, might be more like transactional. Like, hey, if it goes, it goes. If it doesn't, that's okay, right? But th we're talking about those seven-figure deals here. I believe if it's a seven-figure deal, I would always arm my champions as often and as frequently as possible, as as effectively as possible with even things like suggestions on what to do with what I'm sending them, right? Like the consistency there is such an important piece. How, how long have you followed up with a champion before something got done? Tell me a story about that. Uh, there's a story that I've posted about on LinkedIn and, and some people may know. Um, yeah. Someone who became my economic buyer, they became my champion and my economic buyer, which by the way, can happen. Uh, nice. I reached out to them for 10 months. I would, this was a, a contract that we already had. So we, they were a customer of ours, but we were looking at expansion. We were looking at a bigger deal down the road, which ended up being multi-million dollar. Ultimately, this person I identified, and again, going back to thinking about like, who's going to be in this buying committee, I identified them as they were either going to be my champion or my EB, potentially both. Yeah. Uh, I reached out to them for 10 months. And all I did was what many people, if you follow me, have heard about before is keeping you in the loop. So every time I had an important conversation or did, or, you know, accomplished a milestone at their organization with my product, I just sent them a note and said, no ask, keeping you in the loop. Here's a summary of what we've done in the last two weeks, month with X team and people. And I think I probably sent this person six notes before they ever responded. And their response then finally was like, Hey, I know what you guys are working on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for leaning in. And from that day forward, like we started meeting with that person regularly and ultimately they got the deal done for us. And again, multi-million dollars. 10 months. So uh, let me know in the chat. A lot of you are selling seven-figure deals. They're in your pipeline. What is a sales cycle? How long is a sales cycle for you on the enterprise level at the seven-figure level? Tell me in the chat what that looks like for you. What do you think? Is it a year? Is it two years? Is it a year and a half? Are you, you know, 18 months sometimes? Nine months to two years. Daniel, thank you very much. Uh, nine months to two years seems pretty reasonable, I think. We got another upvote for that. Six months to a year. That's pretty solid. These are great times for enterprises. It's very common. Uh, at six to 12 months, tell me your secret, Brian. Uh, <laughs> Super common. And, and again, like we, we've hit on this idea, right, that you need to help your champion sell on your behalf. What I was doing there was simply keeping them updated so that if anyone ever came and asked them and said, hey, what's going on with said company and product that we paid all this money for, they could just go right to the email and be like, well, actually, let me tell you exactly what they're doing. So they're never caught off guard. They're never blindsided by someone else in the org and they know what we're up to. Mm. Them knowing what you're up to was money. I feel like if that's my first response, like you mentioned that person that responded and they were like, Yo, we don't, we totally get what you're up to. I feel like that is like a golden egg for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, you do? Like, 
how, how much do you know? Like, I gotta know this. Why do you know this? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what you gotta do for months. Yeah, no, and we talked about the business case already, and I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but you know why I build the business case from step one? Because there may come the day where someone in that org, regardless of where you are in the stage, is like, holy crap, I need a business case tomorrow. The board asked me about this. The CFO is asking me, like, why is our legal team, you know, doing a paper process situation with you? And right. even if it's not fully fleshed out, if someone called me at 4 a.m. in the morning, a prospect, which hopefully they never do. But if they did, I could be like, hey, let me shoot you this in an email because I already have it for you. So again, for enterprise strategic, the people that mentioned how long these deal cycles are, always just have this stuff in your back pocket. And for the the sellers who are in a different segment or earlier in tenure in their sales career, just get in the habit if time allows of like at least using these methods, right? Yo, that's my that's my favorites right there. I'd be dropping all types of stuff in my favorites list. That way, if I get a call asking me for something, or if I get some rando email asking me for something, I am armed and ready. I'm like quick on the draw with that. Uh, I always feel like people try to get really like smooth with the outreach process. I'm going to reach out every day. I'm going to reach out every other day, and it gets overwhelming. There's too many touches there. I feel like the time to get more consistent with your touches is the paperwork time. So let's talk a little bit about this paperwork. You Now, first of all, uh, when we talk about paperwork, we're talking about control. Uh, tell me about how control and paperwork work together. And then I'm going to ask you about this guide you put together. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the paperwork process in any deal cannot be underestimated. Um, one, it's obviously critical to close a deal because you're going to have to do all these legal and agreements and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's part of it, right? But understanding the paperwork process allows you to understand what their internal process looks like. It helps you to map their process to your process, what teams need to be involved, what are the different documents that you guys have to sign to actually get a deal across, what's the normal timeline on that. Um, I think it's, you, you have to know it, especially in enterprise or strategic for a variety of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is it will dictate the timeline of when you can actually close a deal. I have I cannot tell the people on this call, and they've probably seen it, how many times people have thought they were going to close a deal by said date, but they hadn't uncovered all of the paperwork that goes into it, and they got blindsided by some addendum or DPA, right, or procurement saying, oh, by the way, like you need to have this piece of paperwork. Yeah or that no one told you about it, and it takes four months for us to redline. Seven-figure deals often come with procurement, and John and I talk about this all the time, like get that information early and get those people involved early. You do not want to get to the end of a finish line and then have procurement jump in pissed off because you left them out the entire time. <laughs> yeah, a problem. That's a problem. So that is a blind side. Again, for, for anyone on this call, regardless of segment, tenure, et cetera, that's something that you should be looking to uncover early to mid in the cycle, once you kind of feel like this is real, because you'll want to know what are all the things we have to do and how long does it take? Yep. And actually going back to what we talked about earlier, the initial pieces of the paperwork process can be a great test, right? Mm -hmm. Like like for some people, the NDA may be somewhat meaningless to your point. It's like, let's just see if they're going to do it. But generally speaking, legal teams do not get involved unless there's something real happening because time is money for them and they're not going to spend their time looking at documents if nothing is real. Let me get a one in the chat if you ever paid a lawyer by an hour, by the hour. Let me get a one in the chat. Have you ever paid a lawyer by the hour? I got, 
So I think you're bringing up a really good point here because I one in there. No, I, I, dude, I have paid for an attorney by the hour. Uh, we don't need to talk about that, but <laughs> when you think about those hourly rates, it really does bode well for the seriousness of your deal. When you get a response back, like, you know, we're all historically, no, I'm just bubbling this up to the top. I'm just checking in. I'm just touching base. Don't send these things. Right. But we're all notorious for following up multiple times. What's the status? What's the status? That's essentially what we're after. When they say it's illegal, people go, oh, shit. And it's like a negative thing. It's actually a really good thing because that means this is worth that hourly rate for that attorney to take a look and review this contract. Right. Yep. Spot on. I mean, so if it's illegal, then yes, generally speaking, something good is happening for you as a seller. You'll want to know a couple of other things here. Is the legal internal or is it external? If it's external, in my experience, that usually means that they're definitely not sending anything to legal unless it's very serious because that is like money, money, right? Like the internal legal team is a paid employee that is an FTE spend, but externally, like that's probably a higher rate and they definitely don't send anything out the door unless they want to pay for it. Yeah. So that's one piece of it. And then once you're legal, don't just say, oh, awesome. Let's move on to the next thing. Like you need to understand how long does this normally take? Where have you seen snags? If we're redlining back and forth, is there a cadence that your legal team likes to to have with our legal team? Will they do it to fall? Like without obviously saying too much in one of the deals that I'm in right now, it just came to the point where like, we need to have a direct call between the legal teams because they will flesh this out in 15 minutes that could take three weeks of like back and forth red lines. And yeah, boom, it did it. And it was awesome. I bet it was. Uh, you know, the two legal sides coming together to make this as smooth as possible is definitely like a Voltron moment for any seller working a seven-figure deal. So shout out to all my 80s babies with the Voltron reference. If you don't get it, I'm sorry. Check it out. It looks like a lot of folks, uh, 16% of our voters are, before the first touch, they're thinking about that business case and trying to develop it. I love that. I think that proactive approach is going to help you all through the sales cycle, even if you have to like reiterate and reformat that particular use case, that business case. I think that's really smart. Later in the sales cycle, sooner would probably help you. It would develop later in the sales cycle. But of course, it all depends on your ICP and the personas that you sell to and the industries. There's all lots of variables to consider. There's no wrong answer, no right answer here. I'm simply trying to put it in front of everybody from the perspective. Uh, Let's pivot for a moment. You wrote a 29-step plan for AEVs to exceed quota. 29 steps is a lot, but this is worthy of any seller's attention. What types of things will salespeople learn from this? Yeah, so put together a 29-step plan, as you mentioned. It focuses on ramping to productivity as a seller. So what are all the things you should do as a new seller in an org? Or if you're starting at a new sales org, like learning from top performers, understanding how they've gone about their business to generate pipeline, how have they converted and closed this pipeline? It's essentially just a checklist with a little blurb about like, why would you do this? And it's a precursor to a larger guide that I'm putting out this fall that goes really in depth on how do we, you know, stack break our accounts? How do we build out our territory? How do we research our accounts, build our POV messaging and things like that? So the one that's out today, I hope everyone grabs it. It's free. It's 29 steps, regardless of where you are in your sales career or, or current role. There's definitely going to be some stuff that you can implement in there. So go grab it. Go get it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, 29 steps. I promise there are several in there that you never thought of. I guarantee it, right? (laughs) 
Okay, let's talk about planning because planning, I think, is something that we overlook. We don't put enough time and effort into it. And there's lots of different types of plans that we can focus on. But when it comes to driving us to sales success, I look at plans and I see foundations for closing more business. They can be changed in some ways if they need to, but you preach to your reps all the time, have a mutual action plan, but also a mutual success plan. So let's take a look a little bit at the difference between these two things. Break this down for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And there's probably some people on the calls who are like, oh, mutual action plan, roll their eyes. I've had those moments. What I've found over time, right, is that this is just another piece that we can use to lean in with our buyers, our champions, collaborate with them and test them. Like if mm. put together a mutual action plan and you're not willing to lean in and align with it, like we might have a problem. So let's talk about what that actually means. Again, this does not have to be some masterpiece work of art. It doesn't have to be some beautiful document. A lot of time I do it in just a G sheet, but essentially what it is, is what are all the steps from both sides, my side as the seller and then the buyer side, that need to get completed for us to close this deal and go forth with you know a successful project. So that usually comes down to understanding their process, understanding my process, putting it on a piece of paper, aligning responsibilities. Do I and Rubric own this? Does the customer and the legal team own this on their side? What is the date that we expect to have this done by or need to have this done by to meet some sort of deadline? So again, doesn't have to be pretty, but make sure that you're hashing out those steps. One, so you as a seller know them. Two, your sales leadership will love you because they won't be like, what's going on in this deal and what are you doing next? Like, hey, here's the 15 things I have to go do. And again, we're doing the work on behalf of our buyer to say, let me help you understand how this is purchased. Let me help you understand how other people have had to think about this. Here's all the stuff we have to go do. It might seem daunting, but when we put it on this list, and align timelines and responsibilities to it, like we can check this off and get through it together. Yeah. Together is the, is the operative word, I think, that I'm catching as the theme. There's always this desire to collaboratively attack something that's going to help get this over the finish line. And I think that that is vastly different from provide, decide, purchase, which seems to be the SMB and mid-market way, very much more transactional, uh, a little bit less of a a group effort, right? This collaborative thing is kind of a theme in all these enterprises. Uh, when we talked about this uh, business case and finding and presenting these business cases early, you mentioned ROI and TCO. First of all, let's talk about ROI and how we present it to an enterprise account and then tell everybody about TCO and how you use that. Yeah, I, I think these things get thrown around a lot and they're going to mean different things at different places, right? But essentially what you're trying to understand is what do you have in place today? How much do you pay for it? What are the gaps in that technology or product versus what I offer? Here's how much mine costs. Here's the return on investment in different places, right? So it's not always just going to be like technology v technology. You spend a million dollars, I'm going to do it for 750. Mm. Does that free up people's time in your organization? Does that free up FTE spend? Does that get you out of the way out of, of regulatory fines and compliance issues if you don't do it? Like, where are the places that I can find soft costs to help you with? That's how I think about return on investment. You're going to pay this much. And, and sometimes let, let's flip it, right? Sometimes maybe you're selling something at a premium. Like, hey, what I'm selling you is actually more expensive than what you have today. But here's all the ways that it actually saves you money in the long run. 
if something bad happens, or here's the different things we can do for your org that you're not getting today. So that's how I kind of think about ROI. The TCO part, total cost of ownership, I think that's really looking at it from like a one, three, five, like, can they recoup their money? Can they capitalize it? How do they go about doing that? The big thing I'll say, because that was a bunch of word salad in some ways, if you have something in your org that's already built, leverage it. You can simplify this greatly. Like it doesn't have to be some crazy math problem. And when you do it, when you put it together, again, work with your champion and their team on this because then it comes to them with credibility. It's based on numbers, figures, metrics that they gave you, not something that you pulled out of the sky and not something where you come to them and you're like, well, I could actually save you a bajillion, majillion dollars and 276% over here and 15 people over here. It needs to be realistic and it needs to be done in collaboration with their numbers. There, there's a, there it is again, that collaboration piece. I don't think that we can put these types of assets together without deeper conversations with our enterprise prospects. And that goes for all of the stakeholders, which is why multi-threading is such a huge component and has to happen so soon, is because that buying committee consists of so many different agendas, so many different problems that are being solved, so many different angles that you need to be prepared to talk about as a seller. Um, you gave me three whys, and you said anytime that somebody was putting together something regarding ROI or total cost of ownership or just reaching out in general, there were three questions that they needed to ask. So talk to me about these whys. Yeah, for sure. And I forgot to do mutual success plans. I'm going to hit this really fast. No worries. Mutual action plan, that's all the things you have to do together with your buyer organization to get done. But be very um, focused on also showing what does this look like after we close the deal? What are the next steps? How do we adopt? How do we implement? How do we enable the team? Because again, what we're trying to show is we're not just here to close a deal, get our commission check and get out. I'm here for your success. So the success portion of it is post-close. What are the things we're going to do? What are the um, landmarks we have to hit? You can combine the two of them. It can be mutual action plan, deal closes, mutual success plan. So just wanted to make sure we hit that part. Yeah. So quick flip into three whys. Some people on the call will probably be familiar with this. If you're not, this is a very easy way in essentially three pillars or three slides to present a business case. And what we're actually thinking about when we do this is these three things on the screen. Why do anything? So that's the first thing we start with when we're, when we're in our early conversations with our champions and buyers. Why are you guys looking around at all? Why are you even thinking about evaluating? Like, what is the reason for doing this? I'm always reminded of John Mulaney. Uh, the fact that we would do anything is astounding. It is 100% easier to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you're trying to flesh that out from the very beginning. Like, what is the reason that... Because think about this, for your buyers and champion, they have a full-time job. Yeah. They literally have a full-time job. And on top of that, they and their team and the org is asking them to go and then evaluate technology on top of that. Uh-huh. Understand that to start because that will help you to potentially qualify out a bad deal right away. Like if someone said to me, hey, I'm looking around because our contract comes up in a year. I just want to see what else is out there. Candidly, and, and again, an enterprise, like I might be like, well, yeah, it's going to take a year. So I guess we'll start now. But normally I'd be like, I don't think now's the right time to have this conversation potentially. Now, the flip side is that they said the board has mandated that we have to have this cybersecurity, you know, thing done by X date. 
and that date is four months from now, that's a pretty good why anything about why they might be looking around. You got to have that why, because that why is what's going to drive the other two whys, which is why are you looking at me, right? Like what? So why did you land here? Why are we talking and not one of the other 18 million companies out there that compete with us? Right. And, and again, like you nailed it. I think one thing in the why your company, why your product, it sits in the middle here, but it doesn't mean that this is a sequential process of like, why do anything? And then I've got to go find out why are you talking to me at rubric or whoever, but you're uncovering these things through the cycle because you want to understand like, why do you see me as a potential fit as opposed to, you know, these 10 other technologies that could kind of do this or, yeah. or maybe do this, right? That's where you're building in your differentiators. You're understanding their required capabilities, like what is the future state they're looking for? So again, it doesn't have to be chronological, but like you're uncovering these things during the conversations you're having. Yeah. And the why now, I think it helps us to establish some level of like what happens if they do nothing, right? And this this is extremely complementary to the very first question, why do anything? Why now? Well, we have this leaky bucket problem. Well, we, you know, we got to patch that. That's important. Yeah. I don't want to be losing money faster than you're making it, right? I think the why, the why now is is oftentimes the, the trickiest part. And, and that is actually why it is actually sequential. It is at the end. Think of it this way. So it is essentially someone telling you a compelling event that might exist. And I'm a believer that it's pretty darn difficult to create compelling events that don't exist with your customers. Like the why now is literally why do you have to do this in the next you know three weeks three months three years whatever it is and i need a i need a very tight and well articulated understanding of that because otherwise to your point it could be a do nothing the deal slips over and over and over and this is where the why now piece i think is where you kind of align to like a forecasting mindset why do you have to do this by december 31st mm. you have to do this by october 31st yeah what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? Could yeah. you go till next December? In which case I'm pushing this deal four quarters and probably getting fired or at least like yelled at behind closed doors. Yeah. yeah or I like, uh, I heard somebody once say like, sometimes you can call attention to the fact that it needs to happen sooner because it's taken us this long to get the deal over the finish line. Adoption is something that we're going to want to move much faster. Right. And there's this element of like, yeah, that's true. We move slow. So if I get this started, we can onboard quicker, faster, have a better adoption sooner. And that part is the part that you can leverage as well. This has been great so far. Let's go ahead. What's that? I got to say this part because you just did great segue. So yeah, that goes back to your mutual action plan and mutual success plan. If someone says, I have to do this by this day, you say, well, guess what? Let's run. But here's the 10 things we have to do. Here's how long the legal takes because now I understand your paper process you told me. Here's the success plan, the landmarks we have to hit. So like you see, as we kind of get to the last 10 minutes here, all of this stuff comes together in like a cohesive story for you as a seller, but also for the buyer, the CFO, like the people who never showed up in the conversation who are like, why are we spending time on this and doing this? It's so important to get all of these details. I even imagine a world where sellers that are selling into enterprise will say things like, here's the six to 10 things that we need to do. Can we go ahead and put those on the calendar now so that we can attack them and get them done by the deadlines so that your start date is adhered to. Last thing you want to do is push a close date. Well, the last thing that that buyer wants to do is push a launch date. So let's work together, again, together collaboratively to make sure that that's not what happens. 
This has been great so far. Let me get a one in the chat if this has been useful for you, if you're already thinking about your enterprise accounts a little bit differently and the way that you're using language to be more collaborative with your champions. Super good stuff right here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about early and late signs that this may not work out. How often do these enterprise sellers need to be disqualifying out? You're always disqualifying, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the guy, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist or a cynic, but I'm a realist. Like I'm looking for every opportunity to qualify these deals out because I don't have time to spend in places that aren't going to come to fruition. Right. And I think I've definitely been in situations in my career and probably most people on the call have been in the same where, you know, if I do all the things I know how to do, I could find a way to close this deal. I could find a way to get these people or this person or this team over the finish line. And that's where I think the integrity piece plays in. That's where I think like you have to lean into an EQ situation. And it's difficult because we see people getting laid off. We see people who don't hit attainment, like get, get taken out of boards. We yeah. have to understand like, what is your threshold on your integrity? And you have to be able to lean in from an EQ perspective and understand like, is this the best thing for these people? Maybe more than the company I'm selling to, because if you sell something to people that does not get adopted is a high price tag and is not a lot business value. Those people unfortunately can end up without a job and you have to take that seriously. Well, not only could they end up without a job, but it really does hurt your credibility as a seller. You can't have entities out there saying this person sold me something and then vanished. And it, I never heard back from them again, basically like the snake oil sleazy salesman stigma that exists on all of us. We all fight this, right? Uh, let me get, let me know in the chat, yes or no. When you tell people you're in sales in your family, are they like, oh, are they, oh, I'm a cold caller. They're like, you're one of those. Yes, right? Like this is my whole life when I tell people I'm in sales. Uh, okay, so what about if you can close a deal, but you know that it's not a good fit and it's likely to churn? Uh, this is, again, back to that integrity. And I think we see this a lot with seven-figure deals. Like, oh, I, I'm, I'm a good salesperson. I can close this deal, but should I? Yeah, I think... I think that goes back to hard questions, right? That's you ask yourself some hard questions, but you also have to be willing to ask your champion and the other people in the org some hard questions. And and some of it, quite frankly, comes down to what you just asked. Like, hey, we've been spending a lot of time together. Like we've outlined kind of where we want to be. Is this the best thing right now? Like, and, and again, like a little bit of a test here, right? It sounds like we're moving towards this. Like, are you guys fully aligned with this? Is your VP fully aligned with this? And again, like there's a lot of nuance here, right? So I, I'm not going to have the perfect statement, but I think that's where like having that tight alignment with the champion or a buying committee and being able to ask that question because you've earned the right is super important because you want the honest answers because you don't want to put them in a bad spot and you don't want to put your company in a bad spot. That's right. And honest answers are sometimes hard to come by. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Uh, there's a handful of people in this world that are excited to be the bad guy in every deal. Uh, and usually they're not working with you. I can assure you that you see them very, very seldom. Uh, this is, so we got some good questions here. Let's go to some questions. Uh, would like to see an example or two of a business case, one pager. Uh, that's a that's a good request, actually. Thank you for that, Anonymous. I will have a business case on the next uh, enterprise deal, so we could probably show you a couple of those. That's a good point. Jacob, when you're socializing the offer... Uh, offering or previous offerings to a buying committee of multiple departments, and you go from department to department to introduce them, 
where and when do you talk through what your product or service has to offer before the problem statement, after the problem statement, or right off the bat? Really good question. Yeah. Um, it's a lot to unpack there. I, I think the way that I think about it is I just kind of put it all out in the open. Um, I'm not hiding anything. I'm essentially saying, here's who I've talked to. Here's what I've talked to them about generally. Here's potentially where I can help. And a lot of times early, you're like, I don't know enough. That's why I'm coming to you to try to speak to you also. Because I'm trying to understand like, is this the same problem that you and your team have? Is it different? Can I help you both? Can I help neither of you? So I think it's just for me, like fully showing them what's going on, who we're talking to. So they have like all the information in front of them. And I find that doing that actually gets me more meetings because there's no sneakiness about it. And they mm. sense like, they're not like, this guy's just trying to get me on a call to like, ask me a thousand disco questions. No, I'm trying to get you on a call to like, tell you what we've talked about and be like, can I help you too? I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, I feel the same way when people are like, can you can you do a, a quick demo? I'm like, yo, nobody is amped about your demo. Like, I don't know who's like, oh my God, a demo. I got to do it. Like, it's not a thing. Uh, last question here. I've heard a lot about multi-threading, quite a lot, which is awesome. Are there any other tips that you can quickly suggest to get deals to move faster, especially at enterprise level? Like what, what's, what's the a magic sauce that's worked for you in the past? Um, so on the multi-threading piece, again, multi-threading, but also be thinking about who you want to talk to when you come into a conversation. Is anyone in your org have an alignment with someone there already that you can leverage a warm intro, a referral? Do you have a partner or channel ecosystem that can help you do that? That's one thing. I think that I have found that helping people understand what my process is going to look like gets them either in or out quicker. Instead of saying like, okay, let's schedule the next call and chat through stuff. Like at the end of every call, I'm summarizing what we talked about, but I'm like, hey, just to let you know, like here's the next thing that we have to do on my side and also understanding theirs. Because I think the earlier you flesh that stuff out and it all comes together, the earlier you can just align to picking those things off as opposed to just kind of wandering around and trying to wonder what the next steps are. So it's true. Um, I'll give one more tip here for getting deals to move faster. Don't just connect on social with your decision makers. Connect with other people at the company too that are not decision makers because it helps to bolster that relationship with the company, not just the individuals. This is a great move. Uh, all right, there. Sorry, I said, you know what? So have lower level conversations as well. Like we get a lot of times in enterprise, we get boxed into thinking we've got to get to like a director VP C-suite. Yes, you do need to get there. But the more lower level conversations you have, the more you'll understand what's actually happening and what actually matters there. So go do that. Great stuff. All right, we're going to drop Jake's. Jake, you go by Jake? I assume Jake is okay. That's fine. That's, That's fine. fine. All right. No, no Jacob, they're going to drop Jacob's LinkedIn in the chat so that you guys can connect with him. Go learn from this man. He does a lot of things in the enterprise space. You can ask this guy questions. He will actually respond to you because he's a human being. Connect with us at sellbetter.xyz. Figure out more about what we do, why we do, how will we help. And then follow us on social. Connect with me directly at Say What Sales. I am available all the time. I have never met a stranger, just a friend I haven't met yet. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom, Jacob. Have a great day, everybody. We are rooting for you. See you on the next go round. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.